Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. From 10 to 12 May 2022, the U.S. Army War College hosted the first annual Strategic Land Power Symposium. According to its official report, the symposium aimed to advance the concepts surrounding the role of strategic land power in cooperation, competition, integrated deterrence, and joint all-domain operations. Bringing together students, scholars, and practitioners, the symposium displayed original research and presented solutions to senior leaders about how land power can help achieve national objectives in the future. As part of the symposium, Army leadership had asked the United States Army War College Strategic Land Power Integrated Research Project faculty to address the future role of strategic land power. Taking up that challenge, seven members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2022 participated in the Integrated Research Project as part of their Master's in Strategic Studies degree research requirement and presented their results at the symposium. To amplify their work, A Better Peace has organized two podcast sessions with those students to discuss their projects, their relationship to the Strategic Land Power Symposium, and possible implications for the future of U.S. security policy. This is the first of two sessions, and today's topic is Shaping the Theater with Lieutenant Colonel Phil Baker, Colonel Greg Fox, Mr. Kirk Sanders, and Colonel Carl Zepeno. Lieutenant Colonel Phil Baker is an Army engineer with the North Dakota Army National Guard with 34 years of combined service. Prior to the War College, Colonel Baker was Battalion Commander of the 164th Engineer Battalion. His next assignment is Garrison Commander at the Camp Grafton Training Center in North Dakota. Colonel Greg Fox is a Psychological Operations Officer with extensive experience in key PSYOP positions, including Detachment Commander, Company Commander, Battalion Executive Officer and Commander, and Group Operations Officer, Executive Officer, and Deputy Commander. His operational assignments include Peacekeeping Operations in Kosovo, Support to Special Operations Command Pacific, and multiple combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Mr. Kirk A. Sanders is uh, with the Defense Intelligence Agency, is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel. He's currently a student at the U.S. Army War College, but he's also already received a master's degree in strategic intelligence from the Joint Military Intelligence College and is a fellow from the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government as a senior executive fellow. He had a 24-year career in the Army, and prior to his arrival at Carlisle Barracks, he served at the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command as the Deputy Chief J2C ISR Operations Division. And finally, Lieutenant Colonel Carl Sepeno is a, an intelligence officer in the United States Marine Corps. Throughout his career, he has been deployed five times to Afghanistan with mil- infantry units as a targeting officer and intelligence officer and working with strategic intelligence. He has spent the last 10 years working with defense and strategic human intelligence and was assigned to the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi, Kenya from 2012 to 2015. 
Upon graduation, he will assume the duties as the senior Marine at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. Thanks. Thanks. I, I'd like Thank to- you. You bet. And I'd like to give you each a chance to summarize for the audience your research. We'll go in alphabetical order. So I'd like to start with you, Phil Baker. Uh, thank you. So when I did uh, my research, I, I was researching on how the state partnership program uh, can assist in uh, helping geographic combatant commanders uh, reach their goals in the Army's new operating concept of multi-domain operation. And, and with this, there, there were four key things that I saw that came out of the research, and I'd like to share that with you. And the first one uh, is that the state partnership program helps geographic commanders uh, to set the theater uh, by building long-term and lasting relationships between the United States and partner nations uh, within their theater. Um, these are small footprint, big impact engagements, uh, and they enhance the capability and the trust between the nations. And in turn, the resulting strategic access and influence is both effectual and resilient. Uh, in this case, I think about one of the major concerns of every commander is uh, access spacing and overflight. Uh, and, and the relationships that are constructed uh, through the state partnership program significantly enhance uh, the likelihood of, of these access. The second point that I have is that from its inception, the state partnership program was designed to be used uh, as uh, an element that helps uh, partner nations uh, reform uh, their uh, defense and uh, peacekeeping operations. Uh, these activities uh, serve to bolster the, the nation's techniques, tactics, and procedures for responding to and preventing issues with violent extremists, with terrorist organizations uh, within their borders and large-scale adversaries, if necessary. This peacekeeping operation or focus uh, is something that the state partnership program excels at. A third thing is that the state partnership program actions uh, have, a, have a unique ability at uh, helping out uh, host nations with crisis management or, or disaster management. And this is kind of a unique thing to the National Guard uh, because uh, the National Guard actually does a lot of that in the homeland, working with FEMA, working with uh, the local emergency management personnel. And so the, the National Guard State Partnership Program brings a lot of this uh, to the various nations, partner nations, and, and helps them uh, to get better at uh, dealing with these type of crises uh, in their own country. And, and this effect uh, makes for a more stable nation in the long run. So uh, a more stable nation in the long run translates into uh, a place that doesn't uh, present itself as uh, easy prey uh, for uh, like violent extremism and things of that fashion. And then finally, uh, you know, the, the final thing is that the, the state partnership program really helps to uh, achieve shared security objectives in theater uh, with coordinating activities with our allies and partners. But one of the things that uh, the state partnership program excels in is training. And as our, our allies and partners uh, take on new pieces of equipment, for example, uh, the trainers are likely going to come from uh, the state partnership program. 
but in addition to that, uh, they the partners are going to get together uh, at least twice, two exercises a year, uh, and they're going to execute uh, in ways that are going to help the nation learn how the United States operates and have help the United States learn how that nation operates. And, and that builds a unity, that builds some interoperability uh, that can be leveraged uh, by geographic commanders uh, going forward. That's great. Phil, I, I got to ask while you were, uh, who is North Dakota's uh, partners? Who are the North, the North Dakota Guard? Who are your who are your state partners? So the North Dakota National Guard has three uh, partners, all of which are in Western Africa. Uh, Ghana is our longest running partner. And then Togo and Benin, the two neighbors uh, just to the east of Ghana, are also partnered with North Dakota. It's an interesting regional partnership, uh, and it works out very well. Great, thank you, Phil. Uh, I, I I was going to make an, an observation about the contrast in the weather between West Africa and North Dakota, but we'll we'll save that for the for the subsequent Q and A. Let's go with uh, to Colonel Greg Fox. Thanks, Ron. Um, similar to uh, Phil and the state partnership program that that he described. Uh, I came to the integrated research uh, project with sort of an intent to describe my niche capability in the Army as a PSYOP officer, which is, of course, the cognitive domain and the information dimension of the physical domain. And how does that apply and how does that play out in the Army's new multi-domain operations concept? And what does it mean in the future of warfare that's multi-domain? Uh, with land power. Why is it important? How does it fit into land power? Uh, so I went into this whole thing thinking about those things, thinking about from a, a psychological operations perspective, where why is information and influence important? How will it be leveraged in the future of land power? And what I found was so much of multi-domain operations is focused on conventional military threat which is to say not being out outranged, not being outgunned and being able to provide positional advantage in a theater. And of course, the Army's portion of that is, is the land power perspective. And a lot of that is being done through uh, the six modernization equipping programs that the, that the Army is, is going through. So after, after thinking about that, and thinking about my profession and, and Army Special Operations Forces, Army SOF in particular, with Special Forces, Psychological Operations, and Civil Affairs, I began to think, what is it that is unique that Army SOF provides to land power and in strategic competition specifically? And I think to, to define that, one, you have to define what is strategic competition. What are we trying to do? And secondly, you have to understand what is victory in strategic competition. So I spent a lot of time, I think, in, in the IRP exploring these two concepts of strategic competition and victory in strategic competition and applying that to my craft and, and specifically Army Special Operations Forces and the three tribes that it consists of that primarily operate in that cognitive domain, the human domain, and, and work within information and influence. And the, the truth is joint publication identifies warfare as traditional and irregular. 
And I've made the case that irregular warfare is primarily, it's of course the responsibility of the entire department, but the primary competencies of it uh, reside in special operations forces. And I narrowed that down to Army Special Operations Forces because they're the preponderance of the soft force, over 50% currently. And irregular warfare is defined as counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, security force assistance, unconventional warfare, and stability operations, which include the information and, and civil military components that PSYOP and civil affairs uh, contribute to. And Although 2021 will, will likely be remembered as, as the year that the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, it was also the 30th anniversary of a Desert Storm and American conventional military might and, and the, the pinnacle of, of course, air-land battle and that concept that, that made uh, U.S. military strength, conventional strength for traditional warfare, what it is. And coming out of that, we've enjoyed that strength, but we fought a lot of things that are irregular, getting back to that irregular definition. Afghanistan and Iraq, of course, involved a lot of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, a lot of security force assistance, gripping up with partners in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we have to believe that over the past 20 years, both the conventional force and Army SOF have developed a lot of competencies in that regard. So I, I, I've just spent the, the preponderance of my IRP, IRP time thinking about what, what is irregular warfare, why is it important in, uh, in a world of great power competition where we're primarily, I argue, thinking a lot about uh, conventional military capability. And of course, uh, we have to think about uh, deterrence in terms of the most dangerous uh, whether you're thinking about nuclear deterrence or conventional deterrence. But uh, the truth is the, the most likely is often something that's unconventional. And it's something that we've, we've had uh, what I believe and, and would argue is some competence in through the past 20 years, and that's irregular warfare. And Army Special Operations Forces are at the tip of that spear. And uh, the paper that I wrote specifically talks about how Army Soft can be used in conjunction with the theater army in the Pacific to provide an unconventional deterrent. So while there's nuclear deterrence and while I argue that conventional deterrence is being focused on with MDO and, and with land power uh, development, uh, Army Special Operations can be used to work with the theater army to prevent some of the things that we've seen in the East and South China Sea from China, some of these fait accomplis. And um, that's, uh, that's the heart of my argument. And it, 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 it plays in nicely with things like the State Guard program that, that Phil discusses and also Security Force Assistance Brigade uh, stuff that, that you've discussed in earlier podcasts here on The War Room. And uh, the earlier podcast that you had on great power competition, where you've discussed the idea of how partners and allies are so important in strategic competition. I just argue that one big portion of, of this piece is irregular warfare, and it's critical to marrying up with conventional military might. Thanks, Greg. That's very good. Uh, we will, we'll come back. I, there, I have questions. We'll come back to them. Uh, sure. Now I'd like to go with uh, with Kirk Sanders. Yeah, thank you, Ron. Um, the reason why I originally approached and looked at the Integrated Research Project 
as an area I could join into was, uh, A, I come from Indo-PACOM in the Pacific Theater. And I was really interested, being an old Army guy, and seeing how the Army could be involved more in conducting ISR operations in the theater and being a contributor on a daily basis. But the other part was my concern is that looking at it from a theater perspective, and I had worked with USARPAC, which is the theater Army element there in the past, is I really wanted to see kind of how the Army was looking at the approach of the new approach to theater army and how the theater army would be involved in the theater um, and how they would interact with the theater commands uh, and what their plan was. So in this regard, I took a very, I guess you'd say, uh, you know, uh, personal approach, looking at it from my approach as being an ISR asset manager with inside the theater is that's kind of the area that I looked at. So what I really wanted to look at was uh, the need for the U.S. Army Pacific or USAR PAC to position ISR assets forward in the Pacific theater. And in order to do that, they have to work with the host nation uh, in, in the area they want to place either fixed assets or mobile assets or capabilities. Um, the, the problem that the theater currently has is that there is a shortage of surveillance and reconnaissance assets in the Pacific theater. And... That's why I was looking at the Army maybe being a contributor because it would be a new type of asset as opposed to just adding more of the same from the Air Force, the Navy, or the soft forces that are currently operating in the theater. The theater itself, we're in a competition, obviously, with China, and that's kind of the pacing element from a national security perspective. And so what does the military contribute to that in our theater is basically force posture and forces that are operating within the theater and the military military realm. ISR assets are part of that. And as we operate the ISR assets, we see that there are gaps in both the collection that we're currently conducting, and there's also the part where we don't have persistency on areas that we really want to have persistent coverage on. And so in looking at that, we wanted to see if there was capabilities out there that could do that. And and my proposal in the paper was that the U.S. Army may be able to provide capabilities from fixed sites or other locations, you know, let's think about in the box and out of the box of the way we had previously operated to say what kind of capabilities can we field, uh, especially looking into the South China Sea in those areas where there are island chains around there where we have partners and host nations we may be able to work with to make that happen. So the rationale that I looked at for why U.S. Uh, our USARPAC could place assets in the theater would be, A, they're going to look at aligning their capabilities with the national and Indo-PACOM strategies. National strategy is, hey, we want to look at and pivot towards more of looking at China. We need to have more. And from a theater perspective is we need more ISR capabilities. Our theater combatant commander has gone repeatedly to Congress and said, I need more ISR assets and I need more capability in my theater to do what I really need to do against my adversaries in the theater. So that would be one area where we would see as USARPAC would look at that as aligning some forces to do that. The second area that I thought that from use from a ISR co- contribution perspective would be is it would be setting up the theater and starting to put assets into the theater that would support the multi-domain operational concepts and the out years from the Army concept. So as the Army looks to develop its strategies to provide a mix of forces forward, and we're talking missiles, fires, EW, 
I, I also put in the proposal to say you also should be considering the ISR assets forward as part of that mix. And that's really where you can start gathering intelligence in the competition phases before you get to conflict. But you can also transition and look at as you're placing these ISR assets in there is how you would transition to a conflict and where you need to have those those to support what would be the fires and uh, other capabilities we would want to employ under multi-domain operations. So how do we do that? Because now we've identified in the paper and say, hey, there's a need. So now how do we do that? So the second part of my paper looked at that I, the USARPAC as a theater army needs to develop what would be the internal staffing effort to look at engagements, to look at operations, to look at ISR as how we package that together to work with host nation and partner nations to facilitate you know, employment of our capabilities in the theater. So who do they have to work with? Well, they work internally to get their own staffing process together, but then they have to work with the theater. They have to work with what would be outside agencies and other partners from the U.S. government side. And this includes the U.S. Embassy, who is basically the kind of the first entry into, you know, working with the host nation or partner nation is working with the State Department and the U.S. Embassy to facilitate that type of activity. The other, the other part that I saw as being key to working with the host nation and partner nation for this is what is the benefit that we're going to provide or what, what benefits can we derive in this in working with the host nation and partner nation. So this also goes along with the Army strategy and the theater strategy is we're, we're looking for building interoperability with our host nation and partner nations. And we're also looking at the ability to share information freely between either bilateral relationships or even expanded to multilateral, uh, you know, national sharing of information. And so the, this particular ISR can facilitate or, or maybe a way to facilitate doing that information sharing, because if you bring in an asset that can provide something that the host nation itself can't afford or can't provide, then A, you're giving them added benefit, you're looking at sharing the information with them, and then you're also looking at building the interoperability as we talk about how we share this information theater-wide, US-wide, and within the host nation and partner nation. So there's a lot of applications of that. And, and where you would also look at the interoperability piece is how do we train the, or operationalize the host nation and partner nation in that regard? And so we looked, I looked at or made the suggestion that we could look at some of these training programs we already currently conduct beyond exercises, as in, say, the security force assistance brigades, incorporating some of that training in there, or looking at, as, as Phil was talking about, the National Guard partnership programs, where they could also look at injecting a little bit of this intel training and utilization of information off these platforms to, to work it through. Now, in, these, in this part, in both part of placing an asset and then also working with the host nation and partner nations, I know there are challenges to this. And some of the challenges are the political considerations in the theater itself with these host nation and partner nations. They have to consider the sensitivities of China. So if you start to place assets into country that are U.S. And they, and they appear to be targeted against the adversaries, China may react to that. They may react in a fashion to the host nation, or they may even take a reaction to the United States. And you'd have to have that into consideration as a challenge to placing these assets. The other one is, does the U.S. have the budget? 
And do we have the people within the Army to actually man or stand up these type of capabilities? So how do we get that to be a priority within the Army? Uh, is it also getting budgeting information from theater? And then if we do so, do we get the people that we can train up with the skill sets that are required to emplace and work with these assets? So those are just some of the challenges. I didn't really address the answers to those solutions in my paper. I just brought those up as, hey, these are further for consideration as you go through the staffing. So finally, my well, you know, you, you have you have a career to go on. You have lots more to do. So, you know, you can answer those going forward. Absolutely. So the recommendation is, hey, put put forward the theater army USAR pack, put forward a plan to start talking about and placing ISR assets forward to support the current theater now, but then also look at setting the stage for MDO operations in the future. And then also by doing so, you're also going to help to look at interoperability and working with our host nation and partner nations to provide valuable information that will give them situational awareness within the theater. So that's kind of where my paper went. Awesome. Thank you, Kirk. That was a some fascinating stuff. So we'll, we'll come back to this. I, I, I you know, the, the patterns that one begins to see developing, talking about dealing with allies and partners, the idea about, about pre preparing ahead of time for conflict rather than waiting for it to happen, which of course will bring us to somebody who's always ready in advance, right? I'm, I'm a Marine officer, Carl Zepagno, Colonel Zepagno, please. Hey, thanks, Ron. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to having this conversation uh, with the panel about, I think, all of these topics. Um, but how I approached this, um, the, the integrated research project uh, was taking a look at the two doctrines that will basically implement how um, the Army and the Marine Corps will apply land power in, in both a uh, competition sense and, and a conflict sense. And those two uh, doctrinal uh, ideas are uh, the Army's multi-domain operations and the Marine Corps' expeditionary advanced base operations. Now, both of those uh, uh, ideas, both of those com, uh, com, uh, concepts are rooted in, in uh, addressing both of our um, peer competitors anti-access area denial, denial capabilities, right? Uh, our adversaries are trying to make it so difficult for us to get into an area of operations and make it so costly that we don't even try, right? Which would affects our coercive capabilities and, and uh, force deployment. Um, but that's not the only thing that, that's going to um, impact the United States' ability to force project um, and get involved in uh, uh, coercive efforts uh, around the world. When you start looking at the advanced analytical capabilities uh, with the data that's available now and over the next 10 years, the, uh, the counterintelligence and operational security risks based uh, on an adversary's ability to uh, analyze assess spot data based on individuals' facial recognition, their online pa uh, patterns, uh, their cellular data, where they're going, and, and compile all this data, um, an adversary can start building a true understanding of not only individual uh, capabilities, but when you start layering that on top of what units are doing and how units deploy and the readiness and, and those kinds of things, you can get a very good understanding of how the United States intends to employ its assets, where they're at, move, how they move throughout a, a theater of operations. And if an adversary like China is able to dominate the 5G space, 
the Internet of Things could make it very difficult for the United States to employ um, its capabilities. So for like the Marine Corps, the comment on the Marine Corps wants to have uh, Marines operating in a in a contested space uh, that in, in ways that look you know, very similar to covert efforts to uh, communicate and, and stay underneath the radar. However, because of the ubiquity of these signals and the capabilities that are exist out there, um, this puts a, has a significant threat on how uh, both the Army and the Marine Corps intend to use its uh, people uh, in these contested spaces. So what I took a look at was the, the threat that um, AI and um, advanced analytics using all of this data has on the ability of the United States to implement its MDO and EABO uh, uh, concepts in both conventional and, and uh, irregular warfare. So thank you. Thank you, Carl, because this, what you, what you were just talking about there and the idea that there are multiple that, well, that there are at least two different doctrines in play, right. Gets to one of the, one of the interesting questions that I think runs through all four of your, topics, which is various notions of uh, cooperation, um, whether we're cooperating between the United States and international allies, whether we're communicating cooperating between branches. Um, and, and Greg, I'm thinking about your discussion about uh, you know, the idea of finding out how we're supposed to uh, fit special forces uh, or special operations forces in this larger discussion of what does it mean to be ready for, for a conflict in advance. And so I want to ask a question of the four of you, and you can answer in, in, uh, in any order that you want. And that is, when you were presenting your work to each other, when you were working in the IRP, how much communication and coordination did you have with each other, uh, either about your topics, but about how you, how you approach them? Did you find, uh, did you find that these uh, uh, discussions about cooperation, you know, did they lead to greater cooperation within the IRP itself? Well, I, I think um, as, as we're as as I was going through my research, uh, it helped frame the discussions that we were having in the IRP and interactions. Right, I, I remember uh, I think talking with with Greg and Phil throughout the time we were we were going um, and 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 how uh, it, it framed the different uh, the different things and the things I was thinking of, especially when it comes to um, partner cooperation. Right, like so the the threats that exist out there aren't solely uh, U.S. right, so all of these things as we work with partners, whether it's through uh, the state partnership program or uh, in the soft community, and and our partners, uh, their digital tradecraft, their digital footprints can have as much impact uh, as as say a U.S. person's. So yeah, I thought I thought it helped uh, at least in some of our conversations. Yes, it does, and and I'm I'm I, an interesting connection here that I see is you know. Uh, special operations intelligence uh, uh, they're they're not the same but there is a great deal of uh, of uh, you know let's say for, for, from an outside perspective right they seem to be they're related if they're not directly connected and so Greg I want to ask you right the idea of the role of special operations forces within the theater army within planning for these sorts of things um, how where does that fit? in the, you know, where does special operations forces planning fit into uh, larger military planning, right? Because is it, is it something that is always imagined as being uh, uh, involved in the fight before the beginning, or is it something that's deployed uh, after the fight has begun? Yeah, I, I think you start with uh, 
the competition continuum and, mm-hmm. and what we were talking about earlier from cooperation to conflict, the, the NDS describes the contact layer, mm-hmm. contact, surge, different layers. And uh, really special operations forces, particularly when we talk about our two peer adversaries, uh, are in the contact zone uh, persistently daily, engaging our partners, reinforcing our partners. And, and I go back to what I mentioned as, as something, uh, I, th- I think it was Colonel uh, retired Bob Jones at uh, SOCOM had, had termed uh, unconventional deterrence in a small world's wars journal article, which is essentially providing the ability of working with our partners to where they become so adept and so capable that it it becomes something too painful for our adversaries to imagine in terms of attacking or doing something that's above and beyond the uh, the threshold of conflict. Mm-hmm. And and of course, there's there's something very different between rolling 190,000 plus troops across the border in Ukraine and a fait accompli on a rock island in the South China Sea. Again. Uh, one is probably the most dangerous course of action, and the other is probably most likely uh, up until this this time where we've we've seen with Ukraine. And I, I think the special operations forces are there persistently in theater, providing the ability to have uh, uh, the the ability to push back and providing our partners um, the the assurances that they need. And then when you look at a broader strategic level of, of setting and shaping the theater, that ability to be in theater and be gripped up with partners uh, amplifies everything within multi-domain operations, from long-range precision fires to understanding the environment. So much of what we've been discussing is kill chain. Understand, decide, and act, whether it's intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, or the enemy using our own footprints in a digital environment against us from port, from fort to port, as we've described it. Um, so, so much of that, I think, Sof's ability to work with partners day in and day out, uh, and conventionally, uh, constantly engage in theater is important. And hey, Greg, you know if you oh, go ahead, oh, Carl, sorry, please, no, go ahead, something. Uh, Greg uh, hinted at, and I, and I know it just touches uh, a bit on, on a lot with Kurt, but uh, in this new environment, um, the need for intelligence sharing, right, and, mm-hmm. at, at all levels, so that a like like Greg talks about, hey, to make uh, to make that partnership that much stronger and to be that uh, conventional and irregular deterrent that it needs to be, we need to be able to share intelligence uh, much more effectively, much more efficiently uh, with our partners. I think um, the, the Ukraine conflict is demonstrating the, the, uh, the utility there, um, but it also, I think, uh, can have a deterrent effect uh, even in the end of PACOM if we're able to bring our partners up to a, to a level where the, they are just, they are credible uh, deterrent force with other peer adversaries. Right. Well, and this, Phil, this makes me want to bring you in here too on this uh, because you know, we're talking a lot about Indo-PACOM and uh, uh, what and you know your specific ex- uh, expertise with the North Dakota Guard and with the state partnership is in West Africa. But the idea of uh, you know how does uh, how does cooperation with partner forces right in in what ways 
you know, is there a standard template that is followed, whether your partner is in Benin or uh, Belize? Um, is there, um, you know, and, and what kind of, what kind of uh, information sharing, what kind of common training goes through the various National Guard units so that we can use those partnerships to make it easier to work with partners, no matter what region they are in? Sure. Great question. You know, one of the, one of the problems, and I don't know if that's the right word to use, but one, one of the hindrances that the state partnership program actually has is that uh, unlike in the military where we'll have a geographic combatant commander, somebody who's mm -hmm. over Indo-PACOM, uh, all of those nations have a chief of mission, an individual chief of mission appointed by the president, an ambassador. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's, there's instead of one boss uh, that's over uh, the Indo-PACOM, you know, there's 54 bosses, right, that are over each individual nation in there. So, so there is a challenge there. And one of the ways that we get around that challenge, and it's starting to happen more, uh, although I, I, I wish it would, it would be a lot more prevalent, uh, but where the geographic combatant commander uh, holds a, a a conference basically and says this is the direction uh, that I'd, I'd like us to go in now uh, honestly most uh, most nations most uh, Department of State personnel are on board and they want to they want to do that but everybody's got their their agenda everybody has something that they're right. they're trying to do and it doesn't always line up so it, you know the answer to the question is I, I wish there was a simple answer uh, the challenge is, is that uh, we need to meet, you know, the Department of State's needs, the Department of Defense's needs, uh, the, the host nations need, right, because they get a voice in this as well, uh, and as well as each of the individual states that are in there. So uh, with, a, with a guiding vision from the geographic combatant commander that is pressed forward as saying, hey, this is the direction I would like us to go in, uh, if, if that happens in in a one setting where we're at least in-house uh, in in-house i mean uh, in the united states where the deal department of state and department of defense are together in the direction that we're going in then we can work that uh, with the host nation uh, partners uh, to achieve that objective sometimes it's easy and sometimes uh, you know, it depends great work right the great war college answer. That's right. Well, that's actually makes a lot of sense. Well, and speaking of complex relationships, Kirk, I want to, I want to shift over to you to the idea that, you know, you, you know, retired from the army, um, and, uh, and moved, you know, from one corridor to another in the Pentagon. And so now you're at the DIA. Um, but I am curious how you feel about the way that DIA interacts with, uh, with other, uh, other agencies, uh, both, you know, within the, the, military branches, but also just other agencies within the government as a whole to develop effective strategies and to create synergies with uh, capabilities and plans uh, so that we can be ready for the kind of you know, complex situations that we would face in some place like Indo-PACOM. Sure. I think, well, it, to initially begin with is DIA uh, somewhere around uh, in the 2007-2008 timeframe took over ownership of what would be the component commands, the theater commands, Intel elements. So all the J2 shops uh, fell underneath DIA. So that's predominantly where I've worked. But uh, from that, we work significantly with what would be our 
you know, the mothership that is back in D.C. And I've been at AFRICOM and I've been at UCOM, well, actually AFRICOM and, and PACOM, both as uh, DIA employees. And before that, I worked at UCOM as a uh, in military uniform. But uh the idea is that the DIA folks there working with the DIA folks back in DC um, have a good, good, strong relationship where they're communicating back and forth. And I think that's grown over the years from the, you know, the 2008 timeframe on, on forward, but also the Intel community since 9-11 has had a lot of uh, soul searching and a lot of looks on their perspective to actually you know, how, how do we do things better and how do we become a much more uh, better integrated uh, capability for the nation? So there's there's a significant interaction between what would be the agencies uh, from a national perspective to support the theaters. Um, you see a lot of representation down in the theaters from these particular agencies. Uh, DIA is always there because, of course, we're the J2 backbone, but you'll see, you know, uh, folks from NGA and other agencies that are there to provide and facilitate that. Um, what is unique, I think, from the, the DIA Intel perspective at the J2 is we're doing the daily operational missions for the theater uh, and providing them analytically to the theater commander. So it was interesting when Greg mentioned the part about um, a presence and how we work in a competitive environment. The intel from that, from a perspective in that regard, from the theater and DIA's part of that is constantly looking at the daily interaction and missions that need to be conducted in that regard. So that's why you want to see the components from those theaters being decisively engaged. And, and you do in the ISR realm is you see a very joint effort in all the theaters to kind of bring as many ISR surveillance intel require you know capability to bear in the theater to provide the theater commander with you know basically situational awareness of what's going on the other part that uh, sometimes when you especially when you see big gray platforms out there from the air force or the navy or whatever the presence itself also becomes a I guess you'd say a different mission category. It's it's a deterrence as well as a presence that shows the adversary they're being observed. There's somebody here that cares and that we're going to conduct operations in these areas so that, you know, not only are we have a situational awareness, but we're also letting them know that we're there and we do care about those particular environments. So that, that whole part of that competition phase for presence, ISR plays a key part in that, uh, in that regard. So, that, that's where I see that. And, and the info sharing part, especially in our theater, and especially sometimes you'll find it in the AFRICOM theater and other theaters, is it, it plays a key part in really working with host nation and partner nations and making interoperability a lot better. Um, right. And, and, and I guess uh, just to, since we're, we're just about out of time for this conversation, we just scratched the surface on your topics, but the, the overall idea that it's not only some you know, creating these sort of partnerships and these connections and drawing these larger uh, be, being aware of the situation is something that one not only has to do but one should be seen to be doing 
So seen by your partners so that you know that you're engaged and seen by the adversary so that the adversary knows that you're, that you're really there. I would, you know, I, I would be remiss as a member of the faculty of the School of Strategic Land Power if I didn't say, this is why it's so important to actually be on the ground, um, because that's how people see you. Um, if you're not, uh, if you're not on the ground, they can't see you. Um, I, I hope that you, uh, uh, that you all enjoyed and profited from the experience in the symposium in the IRP. I'm sure you did as you've been wrapping up your time as students here at the War College. Um, I thank you for coming here on A Better Peace to give us a taste of the kind of work that students do at the War College and the kind of work that you did uh, in the IRP and in the symposium. And I wish you all luck going forward. Thanks very much, Phil Baker, Greg Fox, Kirk Sanders, and Carl Zapendo for joining us today on A Better Peace. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having us. And thanks very much for all of you for listening in. Please send us your suggestions and your comments on this program and all other programs, ideas for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice because uh, that's how other people can find out about us, especially if you rate and review us. We are always interested in widening the community for these kinds of conversations. And we look forward to welcoming you all to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.